Hi, I'm Monse, and this is Musings of the Artist, a podcast where I have meaningful conversations with all kinds of artists. Diana Coy Wynn is a poet and multimedia artist. She's the author of the poetry collection Ghost Of, which was a finalist for the National Book Award and LA Times Book Prize. Her poetry and prose have appeared widely in magazines and journals, and she is the recipient of a 2021 fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts. In this episode, we talk about grief, complex emotions, silence, and breaking that silence through art. One of the many things I appreciate about Diana's work is the way she brings light to things that we so often keep in the dark. We also discuss strategies that help us move through sadness when it comes to visit. I'm really excited to share this episode. So here is my conversation with Diana Koi Wen. Thank you so much for making time to chat. Just to introduce listeners a little bit to you, I uh, was recently in a uh, workshop with you through Tin House, and I already was a fan of your work from your blog, Gosta, which we'll talk about. But as a teacher, you know, I was just so blown away by the way you organized that workshop and your incredible attention to language. It, it was just so inspiring and just really eye-opening there, you know, so I wanted to just have you on and talk a little bit more about your work and just language and, and the arts in general. So I usually start this with this question, you know, this big question. So you're a poet and an artist who uses various mediums to tell a story, which we'll be talking about um, today. But I also wanted to ask, like, how would you begin to describe yourself beyond what you do? Thank you for that question, and thanks for having me on this podcast, Muncie. Yes, I guess, how do I self-identify? Big question. <laughs> Is the, yeah, a uh, big, big question. I mean, okay, so I think I only felt comfortable, like, in my bio, just to say poet because of my years of training. But even then, I don't know, I never have really felt that comfortable and then like the whole like multimedia artists also I feel very much like um an imposter there as well but that's okay that's like my own stuff that I'm working through you know so I've trained as a poet and actually I didn't feel most comfortable in my skin until I thought of poetry less as you know writing a poem on the page with stanzas and careful line breaks and more fluidly as, you know, like poetry or poetics as a kind of praxis, right? Like a way of being in the world. And that may, may maybe sounds a little vague, so I can be, be perhaps be a little more specific. So I think of poetry as a kind of deep attention and listening to one's surroundings, exterior, but also the interior and being attuned to the various paradoxes, tensions, startling images, um, strange associations. I don't know, I could go on, I guess. And, and I'm not saying that, you know, like that prose writers don't encounter this in the same way. But for me, it was kind of allowing in such like an influx of daily, I guess, data, material. And from that distilling something perhaps surprising to myself which is to say, you know, things don't always have a clear plot or clearly defined borders, like this is a memory or this is a quote or um, this is something I'm conjuring from my I, my consciousness. I feel like I'm starting to, to kind of ramble, but I think once I just moved, started moving through the world in that way, it felt more comfortable, like I said, because then it was like, oh, everything I do is kind of as a poet even when I'm not writing like right like how I might choose to organize my books or my hang the things in my closet <laughs> and actually this is how I teach now right which I, I teach poetry workshops which is open to anybody in any genre and even any kind of level of uh, familiarity and it's just how do we just pay deep attention to the world and what do we make of what we receive 
and sometimes we can make non-verbally too, which is how I, which is, and that's really kind of based on what I'm calling, you know, my multimedia practice, but it maybe perhaps another way of calling this is like literary arts, right? Which is like less limited to kind of how things might look on a page. And this is also a long way of saying, like, I kind of fell into engaging in, in multiple media forms really due to like a kind of awful circumstance, right? So, um, I was primarily writing, you know, traditional poems on a page. And when my brother passed away in 2014, um, by suicide, he was 24. I found myself unable to really like feel, feel something about it. I mean, I felt really sad for sure, but it also felt like I was constipated, um, in terms of like the memories and deeper, um, ways of identifying the confusion of feelings that were inside of me. And so around the first anniversary of his death, I decided to kind of confront something that was really terrifying. And that specific thing were these photographs. So two years before my brother took his life, in the middle of the night, because he was still living with my parents, as was my sister, who is um, three years older than him. He cut himself out of these family portraits that hung in the hallway leading up to the kitchen. And it was a really kind of quiet violence because he didn't smash anything. He put everything back up. He just took what he felt was his, which was his image. And when this happened, my parents didn't know how to talk about it, but they called me an alarm and I was living across the country. And, you know, I was like, well, have you checked in on him? Is he okay? And, and they said no. And I'll kind of fast forward a little bit, mostly because, you know, my family, we don't communicate very well and there's a lot of um, tension, but also guilt. And which is to say like my brother, and my parents weren't really talking very much at the time. Anyways, so this is all to say those pictures hung up uh, we didn't really address it. Uh, my parents didn't take them down. And then two years later, my brother took his life. So in many ways, those pictures are a kind of foreshadowing, a visual foreshadowing, right? And it's not uncommon for folks in various states of mental health to do that. And and then after my brother died, those pictures continued to stay up, right? So they're very haunting. Like it was haunting while he was alive to kind of walk past them. And it was haunting also when he was dead. Then for me, they became these like, um, remnants, not remnants. Well, they're remnants of the family and they were uncanny because they were kind of previously presages of what was to come. And then they were now, uh, you know, artifacts of what we were, which are instead of five people in the family, we're now four. And still we didn't talk about them. So around that first anniversary, I was like, I don't want to be spooked by these pictures anymore. I don't want to feel guilty. I don't want to feel shame. Um, I'm feeling a mixture of all these things. I had my sister scan them in the middle of the night. And, the, and that's in part because, you know, my parents would never give permission to do any of these things if we asked. So we just kind of did it surreptitiously. And I just spent a lot of time looking at them up close digitally and... Initially, I began a kind of nonverbal practice, so I think this is, I couldn't do anything immediately, and I remember it was springtime in Colorado, and I printed the pictures out, and I took them with me in a hike, and I started placing them, you know, where flowers were, where grass was, and in front of a meadow, or over a stream, or over rocks, and so that was my first kind of nonverbal way of um, filling in the voids, and then later when I sat down to write, I was able to start writing. It was, I think, trying to work in grief to kind of confront something difficult was my accidental, circumstantial, I guess, encounter with, like, the nonverbal. And then from there, I realized, oh, I can't stop, and I want to keep going. And now I primarily, I think, work with family and also diasporic, like, archives and artifacts and I try to encourage others to do that, right? Um, I feel maybe a little bit sheepish because I'm not trained as, quote, a visual artist in any kind of sense. But that's okay. Like, I'm not trying to pose, I think, as anything. It's just I'm trying to figure a way around handling this material, right? The archives. And so that's helped me to, to be okay with, yeah, working through the media. 
gosh, there's so much there and everything you just said. <laughs> I guess I want to start to unpack a little bit about sort of the silence that you're pointing to in your family around this tragic event and just in general, um, because I think this is something that's prevalent in a lot of people's lives and families. And I'm sort of really struck by the way that you take that silence, that's all the things you're not talking about, and then you actually are putting it out there and making art from it, sort of resurrecting these things and and making something really tragic into something beautiful that can be shared and and communal you know i think i i remember you well you were just talking about it but also like in a video you were talking about how you wouldn't talk much about mental illness in your family and there was this part in this video and i think it was an interview or that you were part of where you were talking about that your your brother could hear humming in the walls of the house could you tell that part of the story because i think it's really sort of profound yeah, so my parents are both engineers, um, which isn't to say that all engineers are linearly thinking. But my mother in particular, I think it helps her to follow certain kinds of algorithms. And she doesn't really have a schema in her her mind for mental health, right? Like she and her family, as well as my father and his family, they were refugees after the fall of Saigon. And... Once they came to the United States, it was really about, okay, so how do we do the everyday? How do we go to school? How do we get a job? How do we get out of the house? How do we get married and have kids and buy a house, right? And continue to pursue that American dream and rebuild a life. So when my brother died, I don't think she really understood. And I don't think to her, this quote, American or Western concept of like depression or mental health, like that didn't make any sense to her because like, then according to her, you know, she was de- she, she's depressed her whole life, but she would never want to end her life. Why, you know, like her whole life has been about like just trying to survive no matter what, even if you're sad. And so she really struggled with why her son would take his life. Given all the facts, like he had everything he had, you know, he didn't have to worry about anything. And so... I think it was a few months after his death, she called me and she said, oh, I figured it out. I figured out why your brother took his life. She said, you know, he was an insomniac, right? And I was like, yeah, I know. He had a hard time sleeping and he was always up at night. She's like, well, one time your brother told your father and I that he could hear humming in the walls of the house. So your father and I, we like tried to listen and we looked and we didn't see anything, you know? So we're like, okay, whatever, just go to sleep. You know, in the kind of way that parents can be dismissive um, at times, which is to say they, they didn't they didn't do like a deep investigation. And my mother says, well, your father and I, we were cleaning in the attic space above the kitchen and, you know, we found thousands of dead bees. And so I get it, you know, your brother could hear these bees and they kept him up and he couldn't sleep. And so he killed himself so he could sleep. And so he died in a way because, you know, we didn't listen to him. And it's really chilling to hear her say the story, especially that part about like, oh, he died because we didn't listen to him. Because that takes on so many different levels of meaning beyond the one that she just recounted. And there's a part in the story where I don't tell her, but I, I now write about, and I guess I've talked about it in interviews as well. I didn't visit the house too much, but there was one time when I did and my brother and I, my sister, we all shared a bathroom and on the windowsill was one bee and it was dead. And this is around the time that we're beginning to become aware of like the colonies dying off, you know, or at least I was becoming aware of it. And so I thought it was strange. You know, I, I like, I put it into the, the trash bin and didn't think about, didn't think much about it, you know. And then the next day, there was a bee in the windowsill again. And I looked in the trash can. The, the previous bee is still there. Because, you know, sometimes things look like they're dead, but then they're they're not quite dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was like, okay, it's a new bee. Weird. That's a coincidence. But there's no other signs of bees. There's no hole in the window. Couldn't figure it out. I was like, whatever. And, you know, I just didn't think about it. And I'm, like, thinking about, like, oh, so there were signs I saw a sign, and I didn't think too much of it. And if only I had 
I don't know. Like, this is kind of like the what if game, which maybe I, I know is not healthy, but I'm like, wow, if I had said something, maybe my parents would have been, you know, like we could have been in conversation about it, right? My brother would have known. Like, I don't know if he even saw the bees, actually. Right? That's something I haven't thought about until right now. Anyway, but I feel like the bees also become this metaphor too for our inability to communicate with each other. And so this idea of like not listening, which is also a kind of another way of saying like that we have these silences with each other within the family, within the people who lived in the same house, within myself and my family from whom I, I lived very far away from and was estranged for a long time. Yeah. So I, I, I don't really remember your question about silence, but I've been thinking, a yeah, go ahead. No, 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 no. I was, I, I just wanted to hear um, the story about the bees because yeah. I thought that was so profound. And then I already getting tears in my eyes just thinking about it. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. But I, just, I get sad yeah, about it too. Yeah, it's just, it's just what strikes me so much is, and I think you've said this too, is just sort of that and what your mother was pointing to is sort of this, that deep, how lonely it is to not be heard and, you know, what that must feel like, you know, and, and, and maybe we've, I think mm. we've all felt that in some way in our lives, but just this steep sadness of that, you know, of like that he was hearing something that people were dismissing, you know, and then finding after he had died, this thing, it's just, it's, oof, yeah. I know. And she doesn't, in that I could only try to imagine how she might've felt but it was all very like A to B, B to C, A to C, right? Like, um, there's no talking about like, oh, I feel so bad. It was just like, oh, this is what happened. And it just shows also all these different ways that we all handle our grief, you know, and mm -hmm. and, it, and how they can just clash with each other. I wanted to ask about, well, twofold question, I guess. One is your desire to make public, you know, something that, was something so private to you and your grief i'm sure i can only i'm sure lots of people have reached out to you to tell you how this book has and this work has helped them in their own grief but it sounds like it started sort of as a project for yourself yeah i mean that that's a really important question i think when we work with personal material that concerns you know not just ourselves but family members or people we know and they're still alive. So yeah, I mean, originally doing this work was really just for me and for my sister. And I was sharing this with my sister. And even though I was like playing with the material um, is, is one way of thinking about it. I wasn't like trying to make a poem, if that makes any sense, which is I also wasn't doing this for any specific audience outside of just my sister and I. And for the, the purpose of, I guess... Um, working through our grief, but I found myself actually kind of obsessively working with these photographs and think, and because once I started with that very first one, it opened up like the floodgates of emotions and memories, and they were just spilling out, and I just wanted to keep going, you know, because like there's the curious part of me too, like there's like the the writer part of me and then there's also like the the sad grieving part and you know the two kind of converge and, and blur and there came a point where maybe like a, two years after or like a year after I started doing this so two years after my brother's death I had accumulated a large amount of material and then I was like well let's see what it is and printed it all out and put it together and I was like oh gosh this is a book and then that was terrifying <laughs> Because I had a manuscript, you know, I was sending her, I was sending, I was sending her on a manuscript. And then I was like, no, this is the manuscript, except I don't know if I can handle or if my family can handle this being in the world, right? So I kind of sat on it for a little bit and I was like, oh, crap. Um, and I remember thinking, it came down to this. I can't speak for anybody else, of course. I can only speak to my specific circumstance which is I ultimately decided to make the work public or try to make it public. You know, I didn't know if anybody would care about it. But which is to say, like, to send it out because doing that work, not only was it healing, but I remember thinking, I wish I could have read elegies like this that reflected somebody who looks like me, who has... Um, 
my cultural and familial background. And I wish I could read elegy that said not nice things too, that had confused emotions, you know? And I didn't have that when I was like grieving. I'm sure those things do exist. I just, I didn't encounter that in my training across, you know, undergrad, MFA, PhD. And I remember thinking, well, I said it here, (laughs) all of it, the messiness of it, right? The good, the bad, the mundane. And I think I want to put a book out so that it could be there for other people if they want that. And the other thing too was consciously wanting to not silence the story and keep it within the family, but to say, hey, this happened to my family. And it's an indirect way of saying too, like of offering it to a larger kind of community, which is this kind of thing happens to a lot of families. And often there's a lot of shame associated around it. And I didn't want to silence it into a shameful place, if that makes sense. And that's a really fine line too, because I had to really kind of figure out like, am I exploiting my family situation? You know, but like, I'm not doing this for any kind of like gain. It was really like, this is my intent. I wanted to like reverse the shame around the stuff and and thinking about representation. I don't know. So that was the kind of thinking and thought process. I'm so glad you brought this up because I was going to, I wanted to ask you about this and unpack it a bit because it's almost like this is like societal shame around, like you said, talking about the complexities and dualities and, you know, of people and whether they're a parent or whether they are no longer here. And I so appreciated you talking about that openly and wanting to write that in your, and you know, keep that in your work, not just all the beautiful parts of the person that has died, but also you actually very complicated. And, you know, because is, I mean, we're all, we're all complicated <laughs> and, you know, we all have these not great sides to us. And, and I was just sort of thinking, I, mean, I don't know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, you know, about not being so, so, um, black and white about things, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it. But, you know, just like I have a friend whose mother took her life, but her mother was, you know, narcissistic and abusive to her. And I remember her saying to me, honestly, that it was a relief when it happened. Mm. And, and I know that it, she felt so, so much shame around that feeling. But it's like, can't it be both that you are sad to have lost yeah. the person and it's, it's, it's a grief you'll forever carry, but also that you want the abuse to end, you know? So it's, yeah. it's, it's these complexities. I think like we so often don't talk about them out loud because we feel like we're not allowed to. And, you know, I think literature and art is like the place where, or maybe we can go there, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And anyways, I've just been thinking about this a lot and sort of also even just in our lives, like, you know, people that are still alive and, you know, maybe that are really important to you and you can love them, but not love their behaviors, you know? And yes, like just that messiness, right? And like, what do you do with that sort of, you know? So I've been thinking about this a lot and your, your work, really echoes all that yeah oh I'm so sorry to hear about your friend's mom and I felt chills because I did feel relief too because the part that I don't talk about in the book specifically but you know my brother was you know it was very tumultuous his relationship with my parents and they were violent with each other it was really bad you know and and so there was always this kind of fear in the back of my head, you know, I don't know, I think I was in New York trying to do my MFA at the time. Didn't want to think about my messy family. and But I knew too, like, oh, my brother was maybe at risk for harming himself and or harming my parents and then harming himself, you know. And so when I got the call, it was like one immediate relief, not because he was dead, but that he didn't kill anybody else. And that's a terrible thing to say out loud. And you're not supposed to say anything bad about the dead, usually right? Like, I love him. And I can begin to access and and reflect upon how he was troubled. But I felt that relief. And then I felt so sad. Like, oh, it's, it's over. But also, like, we can't help him anymore. You know, like, there's nothing. Oh, God, it was, it's so complicated. (laughs) Totally. And what do you do with these, you know, it's like, 
it's so hard to live in a body where you feel these deep complexities. I mean, that's, I think one of the hardest things about being a person is living with these things that are not so easily, you know, um, like, oh yeah, I can put this in this box. This is good. This is bad. This is, you know, and there's like all this messiness. Um, you know, I mean, I guess that's what therapy's for, but <laughs> you know, yes. and I just, I just commit, you know, I think it's amazing that you are, are open about it and able to be, because like I said, I just think it's really isolating when you can't, feel like you can really feel all those 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 shades of feelings you know yeah if you're okay talking about this i know you had mentioned too that you have a difficult relationship with your i think mother Mm -hmm. um how do how do you today how do you work through that do you are you still in touch with her or do you like need to give yourself space or you know because i know a lot of people have that too yeah so i think all of it (laughs) both of it it's up and down which is i think kind of in some ways depending upon how my mother's feeling but you know I left home when I turned 18 and I couldn't you know emancipate myself before then and supported myself um, initially through undergrad and you know and it's been off and on and I think in some ways I think wow I feel like I'm going through my whole history here in some ways I felt like my parents and my mother didn't think I could make it out of the house and then they were surprised that I didn't come asking them for help and they kind of became contrite, mostly because then they wanted to have a relationship. And then we tried off and on for like a decade, you know, then leading up to my brother's death. But it was tumultuous because I think in some ways in my Vietnamese family, and I suspect some others, but not all, at least the ones that I've witnessed, um, some of them, um, children are sometimes seen as property of the parents and not like as their own separate entities, right? I was supposed to do whatever my parents wanted, like wanted me to do. Um, and so like I was if I was like their surrogate, you know, versions of themselves. But of course, I'm, a, I'm my own person. So in terms of how is my relationship with her, it was not good for a long time. And one time when I was visiting, my mother said, you know, she'd been Googling me, reading, like, I guess, poems that I had been publishing. And at that time, I was writing, you know, like, a Hansel and Gretel poem, right? So I was writing poems devoid of any kind of ethnic, cultural heritage, and things were very white or and white European. And my mother said, you know, I wrote what you wrote about me. And I said, what are you talking about? I wrote about Hansel and Gretel and she's like, bullshit. You know, yeah. She's like, you know, there's a bad mom in there. And I was like, well, it's not you. Not all mothers are you. Poetry is not nonfiction. And she's like, and she basically, you know, she called me out and she was like, no, you know, I know, I know what that is a thin veil for. And, you know, if you ever write about family or me, you know, again, I will, you know, sue you for slander. Oh gosh. Yeah. And I said, and she's like, you know, you shouldn't write about us because it's exploitative. You should only write about nature and flowers because there's so much, there's so many flowers in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And I, I didn't say yes. I I said, you know, I'm sorry you feel that way. And you don't like own the family. And, you know, I never, am trying to say anything bad about the family Ultimately, I'm writing from my experience, and I don't agree with you here. And, yeah, and that's how we left it. I mean, I think she was really upset, and, you know, and I kind of doubled down when she threatened to sue me, because that's kind of the kind of daughter that I am. Yeah, and it's kind of intense. You're like, oh, wow, okay. (laughs) Yeah, and then I'm also really bratty, because I'm like, oh, whatever. So, like, we're all private citizens. None of us are celebrities. So the burden of proof on her to prove that, one, I have the intent of libel or slander, right? You know, like, then she'd have to prove that'd that. That'd be a the lot. Thing. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a lot. It's a huge <laughs> burden. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but that'd be really hard for her. And one, she doesn't even have a lawyer. So anyway, uh, that's me being bratty daughter, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so hard to write about. It's so hard. That's such a tough place to navigate, especially if the other person you're writing about is not, you know, is coming at it without aggression. That's hard enough to write about somebody without that. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's really tough. (laughs) I mean, I still did it. Right. Yeah. And then when I decided to publish, well, when I just, when, when I decided to make the work public and then when it got picked up for publication, I was like, Oh shit. So now I have to figure out 
Okay. I mean, I don't actually want her to sue me and it's beyond just like, oh, I'm no longer writing, you know, about folk tales. I'm actually like including our family pictures with a picture of my mother, right? right. So <laughs> um, a month before it was published, set to be published, I called my parents and told them, you know, two things. One, I'm going to have a book published. And two, I know you asked me not to write about family, but the book is about family. But actually, it's really ultimately a documentation of my grief process. But that includes family because I'm part of a family. But I want you to understand that it wasn't my intent to, you know, like single out a mother figure and talk about how bad she was, right? Like, I don't think I do that. Yeah, and we had a lot of conversations. I think they were kind of like dazzled by the fact that I was going to have a book because I don't think they ever took my pursuit of, you know, literary arts very seriously. And so I'm still really nervous because they seemed okay. And then the book came out, they came to a book launch, they seemed supportive. And then when the book started to like, you know, get nominated for awards, they were really excited. I think they got so wrapped up in like the attention about the book that they weren't actually thinking about the book. And it wasn't really until the pandemic, again, remember my mother's been Googling me. So she, she read these interviews where I talked about how I don't think my mother reads the book. <laughs> and she was like, I'll show you. <laughs> and then I like, you know, in, the, in those interviews, I talk really frankly about my brother, the good and the bad, right? And the parts that she was embarrassed about. I mean, she can't even use the word suicide, right? She just says your brother is lost as if like something actively took him away, you know, versus, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's very passive tense. Um, so in the pandemic, she, you know, she read the book and then we were really estranged again, you know, and then she got mad. She's also like, oh, you can't talk about us in interviews. And it's like, oh, it's, it's so, the push and pull is so hard too. And it's like, mm. oh, everything's great. You're getting awards. It's great. And then, but yeah. nope, I definitely have people in my life like this. So I know <laughs> it's very hard when you're like, you know, the one day it's this and the next day it's that. And it's, it's very um, disorienting and just sort of like kind of you're always on edge right <laughs> yeah like, oh, yeah and you know I used to get so nervous but I'm not I think one thing was like oh I finally started seeing a therapist of color uh, which really changed was different totally I think imagine. yeah I, I don't I can't even pinpoint exactly what but we worked a lot on okay well like I, I do want to be a part of my my family and how I can safely do so and I, I don't know what it was, but I'm able to do so now in some ways. I think part of what you said, Monsi, earlier, which is like, I do love her. I see her also as like a much, like as, as, as an individual part of a much larger story and collective yes. within the diaspora. Yes. And not just like, oh, she was my bad, yep. mean mommy. I mean, maybe, but, you know, like. She wasn't born that way. Right, right. You know? It's like her own trauma that probably makes her... Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. PTSD, she was a refugee, spent four years trying to escape Vietnam. You know, it's, just, yeah. it's a lot. And it doesn't forgive her by right. any... But I, I could now see her like, yeah. from, a, from a much larger view if I took a step back. Totally. Like, and, and didn't feel like the wounded daughter feelings. Totally. Yeah, and so it's like, oh... She's just embarrassed by a lot of things. And she's also upset that she, her, she doesn't have a great relationship with her daughter, you know? And, and then her daughter is, like, seemingly doing these things that are embarrassing to her. It must be so hard, I mean, from her just, you know, mm -hmm. if you think about her perspective of just, like, because mm -hmm. that, that deep shame that she's feeling, you know, mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with you, really. Um, yeah. And it just was... I've been thinking so much as we're talking about the silence again, about the shame and silence and thinking about how just so sad it is, you know, that we, so many of us feel like we can't share the deepest parts of ourselves and how, and also how mm. long it takes us to be, you know, even the ones of those of us who can get there, how long it can take us to get to that place, you know, and just thinking, just I'll share this story too. For my own life is my paternal grandparents. I found out after they had died that they had met, in a mental institution. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they both had pretty severe depression at that point. And I never knew that when they were alive, you know? And I'm like, man, I wish I had known that. I feel like I would have been so much closer with them than I already was mm. to talk to them, you know, about this baton of sadness that runs through my family line. And, yeah. you know, and, and it was just like, we didn't talk about it, you know? 
Um, and I think that's a lot of people's stories that we just don't talk about. And we just sweep it under the rug and how much more connected we would feel if we just were able to be open about these things. I mean, yeah, I think, I think holding space to try to see somebody, especially the parts that they might feel ashamed about, you know? I don't know if you've asked this specifically, but I'm still thinking about my relationship with my mother and then the work that I do, which is so deeply personal. One thing that's also really helped is, you know, like I have boundaries with my with my mother, but it's also helped tremendously to let her know that I do care about her. And it's not, like, I think you said black or white earlier, like the things aren't right. black or white, right. like right. I'm not her enemy. I don't think of her as an enemy. Like I'm gonna keep writing about how I feel in the family, but I'm also gonna be there. You know, I'm gonna be there for her if she needs help, if she needs advice. And I think that's kind of confusing to her because in her family growing up, things were really black or white. And to have her daughter do these things that she feels are like very terrible, but at the same time, the same daughter is also like quite daughterly. <laughs> you know? um, I think she's like, what? You know, and then she has to reconcile. She can't just say like, oh, my daughter hates me and wants to speak ill of me. And, and, and so we're okay, I think. Um, I think as long as I communicate with her and she's not surprised, that, that has been, that's been helpful. Oh, that's great. You know, I wanted to ask you about, I think it was in the Lit Hub interview that I read, which was such a great interview, um, about you were talking about sort of finding yourself wanting to move past the book, because you've been talking about it mm-hmm. probably a lot, and it's, it's been a thing that people come back to when they're talking about your work. Think about when you put out something, like so I'm thinking about this art in relation to the artist, right? And this, you put something out that's so deeply personal and something that's really heavy and hard for you as a person. It's out there and it's helping other people, but then you as the person, you're like, okay, I now want to turn a page and do this other mm-hmm. thing. Like, what are your thoughts around that? You know, sort of like how you do that and and your relationship with, with the things that you have created that are, and also maybe a different, little bit of a different version of yourself because you do something at a time, in a moment when something is very hot and heavy and present in your life and then maybe you know, five, ten years later, it's not anymore. Um, I don't know if this question is making any sense, if I'm not it the right way. But you know, I think I understand the realm of, of where you're at. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I remember thinking I saw Douglas Kearney perform in 2018. And he talked about how it was so wonderful to have a book right after Patter because Patter was so personal about his and his wife's um, difficulty conceiving, but ultimately they did conceive, but there were just so many miscarriages. And so when he had to read from that book, it brought him back to those that time period. And and then having a book that came right after that, like then he could just quickly move on to this next book, right? Um, I did, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not there yet, right? So it's kind of like, oh, every time I I talk about this book. Actually, talking about the book is okay, but it's like sometimes reading some of these poems, I'm like, I re-enter into that specific bookmark on the timeline in grief. Um, and that's that takes a huge toll. And, and I work with my therapist about that. And I have very kind of specific rituals to enter and exit out of that, that space because you can get sucked into it. Um, and I mean, yeah, once the book, came out I was already kind of writing other poems and um no less sad perhaps but um zoomed out a little bit thinking about the larger extended family and then also the diaspora um and it it feels okay you know um like and also my relationship to my my deceased brother and and where I'm at in grief has also evolved I like to say this, um, I like to tell people how I think about it. So rather than like, oh, okay, this year my brother, well, my brother was born on October 11th, so his birthday um, would have been last week, or it was last week. And instead of thinking like, oh, he would be 32, right? Um, I don't like that would. I don't like that subjunctive. Instead I say like, oh, he's, you know, his ghost is turning eight. (laughs) His ghost just turned eight, (laughs) Like, like when you die, you're like an infant ghost. 
you know? And I love thinking about where he's at now. Like, oh, he's probably in like, what is that? Like, I don't know, you know, fourth grade (laughs) with the other kid ghosts. And I hope they're having a good time, you know? And it's, it's more about celebrating, or I don't know if that's the right word, but it's more of like thinking and honoring the time that's passed in a different framework rather than thinking about like the loss. Cause like to say like, oh, he would be 30. Like that's continuing to think about those years of life that he doesn't get to live, you know? Right. Yeah, and, totally. And in that time, you know, we fed his altar. If I had that, I've had these conversations with him or, or we think about him in this way, you know? And I'd rather reorient myself towards capacity for possibility rather than for what we cannot have. Wow, that's really powerful. And, you know, you mentioned this sort of the idea of the what ifs. Mm. I had a note from the workshop that you did at Tin House, and I don't know if this is going to make any sense to you, but it stood out to me, and I want to ask you about it. I wrote, as if is a way to pivot through likeness, moving toward possibility, possibility that can't be. Mm. I was just sort of thinking about, maybe this is why I'm so drawn to in writing, perhapsing, and writing the, the kind of, yeah, the, not the what ifs, but the alternate ways of something, you know, that could have gone. Is that what you were pointing to? Do you remember? I don't even know. Yeah, well, that came specifically from the Victoria Chang book. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Okay. And then I think you were like privately messaging yes. me. About <laughs> totally. <laughs> that private is now public. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Upon this being aired, yes, yes. not that I remember exactly what you said. Well, what I said was that Chang. Victoria Chang, who I had on the podcast um, a couple episodes oh. ago, she told me about your work. So that's how I learned about you to begin with. Um, yes, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm such a fan of her work, as as you as you know. Um, so she does that move in that one poem and open. I mean, she does it several times, but as if is also like a rhetorical device. Um, seen in kind of classical literature too, ancient Greek and uh, ancient Greek more so than, than Latin. And that's a whole nother podcast where we can talk about my classic nerd, you know, nerd them. Um, but yeah, as if, if we like, you know, I can't not hear, you know, share from clueless, but as if <laughs> is a way of moving towards um, a subjunctive possibility, right? A different way of moving towards likeness. Maybe we can think about it more like the multiverse. Uh, I, I keep thinking about that. Again, mother-daughter movie, you know, everything in it, you know, everything everywhere all at once, right? It moves into a realm of proximity, of possibility, as a way of providing, I think, various kinds of mirrors, distorted or not, for us to further, like, sit and be and, and to examine the reality that we have in front of us, right? Because sometimes it's too hard to look directly at the reality in front of us and to have these alternate versions helps us to approximate a way of being with with all of it, right? And um, the uncertainty and, and perhaps the attendant difficult feelings. Yeah, I think it matters how we think about things and it matters also the language we use when I was really in like the bowels of grief, where feel things feel so hopeless, sometimes I feel like language and thought patterns become quite reductive and simplistic and nihilistic, right? And I found for me a way out through language, not from just sitting in a closet being sad, but on the page was through like pathways, realms of possibility. Mm. And I feel like creative writing gives that to yes. us. Yes, and it's, it's totally, I think that's one of the main reasons that I'm just so drawn to it. It's just, and reading too, just as much as being a reader than writer as writer, but just the way that we can take the material of this utter grief, the griefs of our lives, which we all have, you know, and and just turn, turn it on its side. and. Um, bring to life something that feels really dead. And, you know, um, I want to ask you this question that I often ask on this podcast. I started this podcast a couple of years ago, sort of as a way, sort of my initial intentions to start it was really to sort of uh, talk about the messy complexities of our of our feelings. <laughs> and um, <laughs> especially as artists, because, you know, for just to give you a little background, I um, 
I was in the music industry for many years and I interviewed lots of musicians. And uh, this one time I've been interviewing all these uh, country artists at CMA Fest in Nashville. And they all were kind of coming with these same answers, sort of very media trained, you know, and, oh, I'm supposed to say this. And it just felt very sort of surface level. And then the artist Wynonna Judd came and started talking to me all about, you know, depression and not feeling like enough. And, and I was like, oh my God, I want to do this only this, <laughs> you know, every, every time I have a conversation. Yeah. Just to get to the core of what we're really feeling as and the messiness of being human. So all that to say, when I started this podcast, I usually like to ask when you're going through a really tough time, like you talked about being in the bowels of grief, what are some of the tools that you, you try to pull on to get to the other side or at least get to a different level of, you know, kind of get some air? Oh, yeah. Um, hmm. It's it's really hard for so many reasons. But one specific thing that I can never not forget is um, somebody once said to me, Would you say that to a friend the way you think about yourself? Mm. Like, why don't you, why aren't you as nice to yourself as you would be to a friend or a loved one? Right? Don't you love yourself? Mm. And I was like, well, I don't. <laughs> right? Therein lies the problem. Right, um, right. So, in those moments, sometimes of deep sadness and self loathing, it helps me to think about, like, well, if my friend was here, what would they say to me? And that's helped, that's provided a kind of scaffold to help me, like, accept myself and, and be kind to myself. Which is yeah. to say, rather than internalizing, perhaps, the criticisms from childhood, how can I begin to collaborate with myself, especially when I'm struggling? Right? Instead of putting myself down... How can I make that a space of of helping myself? Does that make sense? Oh, it makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. And it's it's also just like, it's one of those things where people say that about, is this how you would speak to a friend? And we're like, of course not. But, but And it seems so obvious, but we all, so many of us do this, you know? We're just so hard on ourselves. We are so, I, I also, you know, grew up for so long just, always being the one trying to help other people feel better and when I would say like things are going to get better or whatever it is that I would say to them and all that stuff I believed it with every fiber of my being yet when it's me going through it I, I couldn't even tell myself that you know so I really really get that yeah it is so hard and sometimes when I can't do that even just trying to think about it like the possibility of doing that that's okay, right? Like, because then sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm failing at this again. Right, right, <laughs> right that's that too. Oh, I can't then, get over and, it. And, like, yeah. Yeah. and then it's like, oh, the spiral continues. Um, so the other, I wanted to share one more thing, which is um, sometimes I just start really small. I just say out loud, like, okay, I'm going to go pee. I'm going to go to the restroom. I'm going to wash my face. I'm going to make a little snack. And I'm going to just go to bed. You know, like it just, like, I, I, I mean, I make like a checklist of things to do. Like, I can't feel better in this moment. So I'm just gonna, because I feel, usually I'm also like stuck, right? Like totally. I'm like in mud or something. Yeah. So I'm just, I give myself a series of steps and I do them. And I think that helps to just get life continuing on again. Like I, I love that. That's a really practical strategy to just be like, all right, I need to do these little things to take care of myself, like on, on the basic level, <laughs> you know, here's what I need to do. And I've just been thinking too, how it's like when you're in that place, how I was recently in this place a little bit, a little mm. bit, and I was thinking about how much I was worried about other people perceiving me, you know, or like oh. that I was a burden to them. Yeah. And I think a lot of us feel that way. It's like, not, it's like you can't even let yourself feel sad because you're like, oh, I don't want to inconvenience somebody else and make them feel. Mm -hmm. And that's and that's a whole other layer. You know? So it's like, I just want to go in a little cocoon and just like be like, I'm just going to hang here for a little while until this passes, you know? But yeah, it's hard. Yeah, that's, that is really hard. I have this problem with my spouse and he's mm. the same way. And 
Sometimes we have conflicts because we can't accept each other's help. Oh, it's really stupid. No, it's not stupid. It's, it's understandable. <laughs> we had this really frank conversation. We're like, okay, I think part of generosity is accepting the other person's generosity. Totally, totally. <laughs> it's hard, especially when you've been, you sort of grew up being told like you couldn't really feel what you're feeling, right? Like you're like, oh no, yeah. that's just set aside. So. I'm sure that plays into it. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad you, I, I'm glad you have each other. Even if it's hard to accept oh, yeah. that, you know? okay. we, we work through it. It's, oh. you know, in progress always. Yeah. Well, I want to, um, I want to ask also this, this question that I, I've been asking lately. Um, it's such a feel good question, <laughs> which is what's an act of kindness that you've received in your life that felt transformative or that had a big impact on you? Oh, I love this question thinking about reorienting ourselves towards, I guess, generosity and gifts of others. I think it would be, I think there are so many probably. Um, and the one that I'm aware of that I think about often is maybe there were two, um, one in a moment when I was struggling and, and one really when I was at crossroads. So the first one being was an undergrad, you know, never really took creative writing that seriously. And I knew I didn't want to, you know, go off to med school anymore. And so I was like, oh, well, I guess the next natural thing is really to prepare to try to go to law school. And I was at a, I was at a party and I don't know why my professor was at this party. Why I do in part, cause I think he was really impressed with this particular individual and this mentor and he was a mentor of mine and he he said hey what are you doing when you graduate and I said oh I don't know I'm like you know trying to take the LSAT now and I guess I'll apply to law school in a year and he said okay well but you know have you thought about doing an MFA and I had never thought about that I think I barely knew what an MFA was it was like for somebody who was serious about art <laughs> not me not me you know and, and I think for him to say this, I was like, I remember thinking like, what? And he's like, yeah, I think, I think you should do that. I think, I think, you know, like you're meant to continue making poems. And I was like, what? <laughs> and, and then I was terrified because I was like, I don't, I don't know what, like, well, one, I was like, oh, part flattered. Like, oh, this is somebody who exists in that world who thinks I should, you know, try to, joined in that world too but then I was like I don't know anything about it you know like my family uh, they're refugee immigrants who come here to and they they do practical jobs that have stable income and I don't know anything about trying to pursue poetry but I don't think that's stable income right <laughs> <laughs> yeah right <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which I guess is the luxury that one can have as a child of immigrants. And not to say that immigrants can't, but for my parents, in some ways, it was never an option. And, um, you know, we met in office hours. He talked about the different MFA programs. And I didn't apply right away. I applied a year later. And um, But I remember thinking, like, not only did he, like, it wasn't just like I was a student in his class, you know, but he saw me. Or he saw, like, something in me. And I don't think he knows it, but, or at least not explicitly in this way, but he gave me permission to have this dream that I didn't even know I wanted to have because it was never on the table for me previously. Mm -hmm. it's, it's so profound, you know? And just the way that one person can, like, alter the whole course of your life, you know? Yeah. And not even realizing it in the moment. I mean, he knows now. I mean, knows now. We've, we've, <laughs> we, we've kept in touch all this. I mean, he was quite, I mean, he was older than, I don't even want to say like, oh, he's an old guy, but I mean, like, he's still alive and we still talk. Um, and he's been there with me, I think, through all these stages. And I'm so grateful to him, you know? Um, uh, I'm trying to think, what was the other moment? that I was going to share. Oh, I don't remember it anymore. But it was something kind of similar where somebody sees you and they let you know in a kind way. 
I, I think about this a lot, you know, about about just these like again, back to what we started talking about, about being seen, being heard. I just how vital that is, you know, for us mm-hmm. to, to show us our own potential and show us I mean it's it, and it can go either way, right? Like how somebody can tell you you can't do something and how that can shut something down. Um mm-hmm. just the opposite of that. It like can open the whole world up for you for you and yeah, anyways, I I'm, I'm sort of been ruminating on this a lot lately and thinking about just just also like in our in school how often it can go both those ways, you know, and how that can mm. Oh yeah. Lives. Um yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. I have one last question if that's okay. Um the yeah, question sure. is about I I just like to to see if you could share a piece of art, it could be multiple. Um you know, book, album, film or, or anything that's been really important to you in your life. I'm like, oh, what is the crafted response? But then there's like, what's just the truthful response? Mm, Yes. (laughs) I'm going to give you the truthful response, (laughs) Um, which is, I was, okay, this is a totally different conversation to have, but I wasn't really allowed access to media as a kid because my mother, and when I say media, I mean like books, movies, music. So, and sometimes I call these years my bunker years, like as if I was in some kind of time capsule and I didn't have access to what was going on. However, every Friday night in California, I would always pick up the like free entertainment section of the newspaper, the Daily Breeze. It was just free. Like you could just pick it up and I would comb through the pages. Oh my God. I think I was like a kid. I would comb through the pages and I would like read everything. I would know like, oh, these are shows that are on TV that I don't get to watch. Or these are movies that are about to come out, you know? And so I was reading, at least I was reading like arts criticism. I had like a bulletin board that I would cut out like things where I was like, oh, if I could watch things, these are the things I would watch, (laughs) you know? incredible i feel like you see the books that need to be written yeah maybe i'm actually working that's a whole nother conversation but i am working on this kind of autobiographical prose project now um oh my gosh okay yeah (laughs) it's hybrid too so yeah yeah we were talking about that right at the beginning um so let's fast forward a little bit i did this for years i did this throughout high school it was kind of like a wish board right so to speak and let's be also clear, like I also smuggled in books, you know. <laughs> I love that um, smuggled in books. <laughs> I did, because my mother would check my backpack wow. before and after school. Yeah, yeah. And that's a whole other conversation, like how I created a trap door in my backpack so I can I could wow. smuggle in books. Mm-hmm. So when she when she checked, she wouldn't find them. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> We've come a long way. <laughs> Sorry, this is a long way to say. I remember when the movie Memento came out which is like the very first, I think, Christopher Nolan movie. And the reviews were insane. And I remember thinking like this, I hadn't watched the movie yet, right? But I remember reading about it and understanding its kind of recursion and backwards fragmented way of storytelling and being so excited. And then I can't remember, this is like around the cusp of when I turned 18, because when I did turn 18, I could kind of do whatever I wanted, right? I mean, I was limited in terms of finances, but I remember watching the movie and it blew my mind. I mean, did it blow? I mean, I think it blew a lot of people's minds, but it blew my mind in part because I had been reading books that were fairly linear, but for the first time to see something on film to do storytelling in that way really like changed how I thought about possibilities. Right. I mean, I don't work with narrative in in a prose way or even in a film cinematic way. Um, But I think that that's left a huge impression on possibilities of what we can do with pieces. And just like moving outside of traditional forms. When I look back now, I'm like, oh yeah, duh. But, you know, that's that greatly gave me permission and excitement to proceed in that way later on, you know, when I was like writing and stuff. Um, I don't think I've thought about the movie in the ages until like you had just asked that question. <laughs> I was just going to say that that's so incredible that you could trace it back to that moment where you, that really opened up the possibilities for you of this like sort of fragmented and hybrid work. Cause that's really what you're doing now. Right. 
um, most of what you work with. Yeah, but not consciously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Diana, thank you so much for this rich conversation. It was um it was incredible. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on and for your thoughtful questions and just also what you've shared about your life and, and folks in it. And I'm holding, you know, that in my body today. And yeah, and I hope you're able to to find new ways to be kind to yourself as I do myself. <laughs> This episode was audio produced by Katie McMurrin. The music is by Madison Ward.